Welcome to the Retirement Plan Playbook. I'm your host, Brent Pasqua. Joining as always is Matthew Thiel and Joshua Winterswike. This is episode 24 and today's show topic, the long-term impact of COVID-19. Today we're really gonna talk about how the impact of COVID-19 will have on life going forward and what we think some of those short-term and long-term impacts really are going to be. Uh, just to start though, guys, how's it going living at home? Um, it's going pretty good for me. I'm a little bored, gaining weight. I have a very small apartment. I don't, I don't own a house and I'm kind of going stir crazy. Been going outside, going on lots of long walks. Definitely ready for some more space though, that's for sure. You get out very much? I mean, do you just go outside, take a break? Are you go in the stores very much or how are you handling that? No, it's pretty hard to get in stores in LA. There's usually lines. Um, so I was trying to stay away from lines. I'm trying to stay away from people right now. Uh, but yeah, I've been getting, been getting a lot of fresh air. They say fresh air is good for killing the virus. So how's it going for you, Josh? Okay. I'm kind of with Matt. So my space is not that big. So getting out in uh, with my you know wife and dogs on long walks is, is keeping us sane, getting some fresh air as well. The dogs love it, continue to love it, us being home, but uh, making it through it. And just finding, you know, new things to um, read, watch, do to, to keep us from, you know, losing it. Have either of you guys started like in-home workouts? Do you guys find those effective or motivating at all? I find them extremely unmotivating and I've done two. That's why I'm gaining weight. Plus I'm eating lots of sweets and breads. Like old Matt's coming back. Oh, so you're, you took the restrictions off when you're not in the office putting all the restrictions on us. Exactly. Yeah, I find it pretty difficult to to do. I mean, I'm w- working out at home, but it's just it's not like being in a class or having a full workout. Um, it's not the same, but you have to get it in, I guess, whether it's on long walks or you just got to get the exercise in. Are you guys missing sports? I mean, it's been, what, over a month now and there's still no sports on? I mean, do you guys miss it at all or you find yourself missing it at all? Absolutely, I am. I mean, we have you know, a love for even viewing sports live. I think we all share that. And uh, not being able to watch any sports, not being able to, to physically go watch a game. You know, it's just been part of normal life for so long and a hobby and really enjoyed it. It's definitely missed. I, I have to imagine ESPN is just hurting so much because there's like no reason you can turn on that channel right now. Besides the so, Michael Jordan documentary. Yeah. Besides that, I don't think there's much else to have on that that channel on for any reason i saw that they asked their anchors to take pretty big pay cuts makes sense i mean viewership is probably way down i mean where would we be right now without netflix renting more movies i guess on demand or you know watching it through different services i think netflix is a saving grace that it kind of you know it's a one-stop shop for whatever you're looking for what do you think matt yeah um I think we'd all be in trouble without Netflix and the internet. Maybe people would pick up books. I don't know. I think that's what they used to do back in the day before, <laughs> before TV, radio, and all that other stuff. Um, I, I find it really hard to even watch cable TV, or I don't even really turn on track TV nearly as much. I mean, since this all started, like if I'm going to sit down and watch something, it's more or less going to probably be Netflix. It's not going to be something on direct TV or, or cable TV. I'm coming to that conclusion too, especially with no sports on. I mean, that's mostly what I use the direct TV service for. Are you guys eating out much? Like, do you pick up food? Do you trust it? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I try and do it at least once a week, but I, I don't go to any large chains. I only go to small businesses. You got to support and help those people at times like this. Right. That's what I'm doing too. It's usually once or twice a week and try to pick something local or somewhere that we normally would go to that's, you know, one of the local shops or restaurants to support the community. Talking about the stock market, I was trying to think back. Do you guys remember what your first stock trade actually was when you first placed your first trade? I do. Sure. What did you buy? What did you buy first? Nortel Networks in 2003. What made you buy it? They were talking about it on CBC. <laughs> the old old school Kramer back in the day pick. I don't think. Yeah. He was no, he he was he was on a different show with Larry Kudlow. Kudlow and Kramer. It was called. Yeah. Do you remember yours, Josh? Yeah, it was Chipotle. I think I told this story on a podcast before. Yeah, I, I think we did tell the story. I did a project on it. I didn't buy it. I was in college. Skyrocketed up after that <laughs> and then bought it once it was already uh, high. Was not my, not a beginner's luck whatsoever. Yeah. I feel like a lot of young people right now are, are placing their first trades as, you know, people think it's a good opportunity to start buying stocks right now. I think that's, you know, there's a lot of newcomers going on to Robinhood and other apps that are trying to place these beginner trades, getting a feel for the market probably losing money right now, but it's a good time for people to get some experience in, I guess. Um, so starting with the topic, with COVID-19, do you think this is going to be a societal shift uh, like after what happened in 9-11? I mean, after 9-11, obviously we went into a long war, developed new technologies. I mean, that war was really fought with drones. We did less less on the ground. I mean, we're on the ground, obviously, there, but less, less plane flying over, less Navy, a little bit more drones. A lot of people were killed from satellites. Do you see us making those shifts where we're seeing everybody's out in public wearing masks and gloves? At least I know, I think till the vaccine comes, but could that be long-term? And you think the national health reserve, you know, um, stocks up finally, or we get some temperature checks everywhere we go. I mean, if we go to the airport, you can get temperature check, go to a restaurant, you get temperature check. If you walk into a local business or you get temperature check, you think there's going to be some major shifts in that? I think so, certainly. I mean, basically, this virus has exposed how weak America is actually uh, fighting a virus. So if you're a terrorist organization, all you have to do is is release a, a, a bioweapon like this in our country that spreads. And man, you're going to put us in a world of pain. So we have to start diverting more resources to healthcare. What are your thoughts, Josh? Yeah, I think that with any, any crisis, you know, they're vectors for change. So there's going to be a lot of changes. I think it's, you know, just speculating how big um, and how many industries or how many people are going to be affected. But I agree with Matt. I think that one of the biggest changes is going to be with healthcare. What a, a huge hole to fill for the future of, you know, that gap between are we prepared and are we not um, needs to close and hopefully we can get it done, you know, because of this crisis. I feel like this has made me even more of a germaphobe. Like I was already a germaphobe in a lot of ways, but I feel like this is making me even worse. Like I'm thinking about why when it's flu season, like why wouldn't I be wanting to wear gloves and mask all the time? Like if I don't want to get the flu, why don't I just wear gloves and mask all the time? Or, you know, do you think that's going to become a more common sight? Like you see in Asia, I mean, a lot of those people, it's kind of regular for them to wear masks and gloves. I think so. Absolutely. I mean, we'll at least be, you know, wearing masks and gloves until there's most likely a vaccine, unless you've yeah. had it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and if I, 
one of the things that's when you have young kids, I mean, if you're going to get sick, chances are you're not getting it from the grocery store though. That's, that's the only thing. I mean, they come home sick from school. They pick up things. There's tons of germs in school. They're coughing and hugging and breathing all over you. It's pretty impossible to avoid. I mean, you're going to get, unless you have a super strong immune system, I mean, you're probably going to get it. But I mean, if the schools did something, I think, you know, obviously they, there could be a lot of prevention done there also. But I know that like, you know, this is completely different than, you know, something we've ever experienced, but, you know, some mild colds and flus are good to build immunities as well. I mean, we need them as humans to, you know, fight off and, and build immunity. You can't go your whole life not coming in contact with any germs or you wouldn't be able to fight off any germs. Right. So it's like a hard balance, I guess, is just my point of, you know, not with COVID, take your proper precautions, but, you know, just on a regular daily basis going forward, you know, how much is too much and how much is, is good enough is, I guess, the, you know, question we have to answer. You know, because you see already people protesting and a lot of those people aren't even wearing masks and they're not already, they're not worried. So, you know, that, that set of group of people is probably going to expand into more, you know, because I, I know there's going to be those who are worried and those are, are not. We're already seeing that there's sort of a division already being created. Yeah. So I guess then um, what is your opinion on the impact of COVID in the working environment? Like if you look at blue collar jobs versus white collar jobs or central businesses versus non-essential businesses, what do you think some of the differences we're going to see in the workplace environment? That's, that's a good question, Brent. I think you actually brought up a good point with the blue collar versus white collar. In, in my opinion, that's the way we used to look at jobs in this country. But going forward, I, I think, and I, I read this in a paper, that we're going to probably switch to looking at it like in a cloud versus land way, or like you said, essential versus non-essential. So like as financial planners, the three of us are cloud employees, right? We don't really need to be in our office to do our job. We can do it from anywhere. Um, but there's certain employees who actually need to be in physical space on land, delivery people, you know, restaurant workers, grocery store workers, uh, nurses, doctors, they, they need physical space to do their job. Uh, so it's going to create a, a really interesting class system. And, you know, a lot of people are starting to predict that this could really end up hurting office space. So commercial real estate over the next, you know, 10 to 15 years might, might not do so well. Yeah. It makes, it makes you wonder, you know, for business owners, do I need all that space? And really forcing everyone to see if their business is really cloud or can we work remotely? And, you know, it seems like a lot of businesses from what I've seen have found success with the internet and all of the services that come with it of managing the business going forward. So that's a, a really good comparison to the blue collar to white collar now to the cloud and land. Just gonna be interesting to see how many cloud-based businesses go back to being land after this is done. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you think about like your tax person or just any, any appointments that you would regularly go to in person, I mean, those companies have the capabilities to do them virtually. You don't have to drive. You don't have to go sit down. You don't have to wait and then do the appointment and then drive back. You know, you're cut your time by 60%, 70%. Would you rather be doing that than driving to those appointments and doing them in person? Yeah, it's you're definitely more efficient when you're when you're working, you know, via the cloud or just doing everything virtually. And in a way, because no one's driving, like you said, it's good for air pollution. It's you know, I, I just have to imagine, like, if I have an appointment that I could see that person, for example, like I have a, a ta- I need to go get my taxes done, and the tax person wants to have some questions. I know a lot of people do it by mail, but 
you know, they don't need to be a, a person appointment, but let's say you have an in-person appointment. They say, Hey, let's just do it virtually. I mean, what most people want that, I mean, especially with California traffic and traffic all over, we just want to do it virtually, get it over with, be in your home and not have to drive. Makes a lot of sense. I think it also just depends on the person. Some people like that personal interaction, but what is forcing, I mean, what COVID-19 is forcing people do is to adapt to the virtual, right? You're, you're forced to do it. Um, so really answering the question of, do you really need that interaction that you thought you liked? But I know like even just me personally, you know, for some things or some services that I do, I like to meet face to face. There's something that's, that's still valuable with that, but I'm definitely going to think twice now more as if that's really worth it um, going forward. It's now forced me to, you know, take a second look at that decision. I think this whole situation is an introvert's dream. Right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. Uh, what do you think is going to happen with housing? Uh, you think things are going to get start to get spaced out? I mean, do you think city life becomes less desirable? People want to move their families to suburbs, not be on top of each other, not have so much central or used central locations. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, if the trend is, you know, more people are going to start working remotely, then there's really no reason to live inside of a city. Because most people pick cities, right? Because it's close to where their job, that's where the company's headquarters, so they could attract the top talent in their industries. But w- there's already tons of articles about people leaving New York City because of how bad COVID was there and how the reason COVID spread was because essentially New York was built on top of each other uh, with very, very high urban density. But going even further, I think we're going to see a lot of people migrate to the warmer states. The studies have pretty much shown that the, the weather up in Washington, Seattle, San Francisco, or even how it's been here in LA for the past month, you know, 60 degrees or less is really good for the virus spread. Whereas some of those warmer states that we're seeing open back up, the virus isn't spreading as fast. I have to imagine that a lot of people like the city environment, the city life. It is a fun paced environment to live in. So I have to imagine, you know, obviously it still becomes still very desirable, but I think now there's this whole other reason to move outside of it. I mean, what's your thoughts, Josh? I think there's just another variable. I mean, a lot of the other reasons that that I go into the city is for entertainment. So if it's for a concert, if it's for a show, if it's for sports, dining. So if this stays around or comes back, let's say in the fall, even worse, or, you know, we have another COVID, that's going to make me again think twice about going to the city, right? It's just the risk is greater and um, the benefit's just not there. So I think that variable of it just kind of depends on, you know, how long this sticks around. And if this is going to be more normal, then it's not. Uh, the, next, the next question I have is, is really, that, and that leads into the next one uh, on live events. I mean, with sports being paused and then having these massive stadiums, which are just obviously you're exposed to everywhere. Concerts are the same way. Festivals outdoor markets, places where they're high density, lots of people. Do you think this changes that environment also long-term? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think that live events, sports, concerts, uh, those music festivals, conferences, those are going to be the last things to reopen. They're, they're just too high risk. And like, who, who really wants to go inside of a, you know, NFL stadium packed with 100,000 people right now? It's just not smart. And there, there's no way for them to control really who's going in, right? Like temperature checks. Yeah, that sounds great. But is it really realistic? Uh, probably not. I mean, you already line up at the gate and wait to get in for 
for a long time. I can't imagine what that would be like trying to temperature check everybody. Just getting yeah. secure through security is a pain. But I think that like open air stadium, I mean, people are still going to have that love for sports and still want to do that. So eventually now we're already seeing a lot of sports leagues, you know, delay this for, you know, the months already. But I think that open air stadiums will just become even more popular. Like, do you want to be in an arena or would you rather be in an open air stadium when it's 90 degrees outside? When we talked about like the heat and just open air. So I definitely, though, I agree with you. It is going to have a major effect. I think it's just going to cause a lot of change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because everything's changing so fast right now. Like, you know, every day we're learning something new. And then you start to wonder, like, are these going to be long-term impacts? Or are all these going to be really short-term impacts? You know, because, like, some of this, once you have the vaccine, I mean, somebody would be like, we're, we want to go back to a normal life, pack a 50,000 stadium indoors. Who cares? We're not really worried about it until something else happens again. And then there's others that are like, you know what, these are just, it's too many people packed into a tight place. What's short term to you, Brent? Short term would be until there's a vaccine. So 18 months, 12 months from now, they can get it out quick enough, you know, but that's a long time. I mean, that that was what my thought was, you know, that's still, that's a long time. That's not just a short amount of time, 18 months, you know, let's call it two years. Right. Yeah. What about another interesting one, and that's travel. Cruise ships have been hit so hard. Uh, amazingly, I think there's still some cruise ships out there that are still traveling, which is just mind-boggling. <laughs> but hotels have been hit, airlines, obviously, Airbnbs, those are in trouble. What do you think happens with travel now? I think it'll bounce back. People still are, are going to want to travel. They're going to want to get out of, of, their, of their homes. They're going to want to take take vacations it, it might take a little bit longer for travel to bounce back let me give you an example we, we all live in our los, los angeles or a suburb of los angeles you take a pretty nice trip uh going up the coast of santa barbara right if you want to get some different beach time or going down to san diego mm-hmm. so maybe maybe that's the trend for a while uh, but eventually people will start going back go to hawaii go to the bahamas uh travel to new york city travel to paris but as for cruise ships, I mean, I will, I will never probably ever get on one of those again in my life. I don't see the upside, but I know people like them a lot, and I know why they like them. They're very, very popular with the older retired set who likes to travel. They're easier. Yeah. It provides a lot of convenience, but I'm with you on the, the cruise lines. Like, can they even survive this, or how many of them are going to survive? You know, we're talking about a two-year time frame or 18 months, but – just listening, you know, to your comments, Matt, does that, you know, allow Airbnb to bounce back fairly quickly? You know, uh, you can sanitize an Airbnb. You're not around a ton of other people. Let's say even like a, a hotel room and take a trip where you can drive a couple hours and spend there. And does that help Airbnb going forward to kind of capture the people who still want to travel, but don't want to get on a cruise ship or an airplane? I think that if Airbnb owned their properties, they'd probably be able to make it out. But the fact that they don't own their properties, man, they're, they're in serious trouble because it's a third party, right? Who owns the property and we don't know how leveraged they are. So we, we could see a lot of those Airbnb homes starting to hit the market uh, for sale as the owners run out of money. I wonder also how like people who are just retiring are starting to think of like their travel goals. Because one of the questions that always comes up when we do retirement planning is, you know, what do you want to do travel-wise? And you know, where are these destinations that you really want to go? And it, 
is that going to become more localized? Is that travel, those travel destinations really going to change? People's thought towards them going to change. I mean, is it just too risky to be traveling? I know in the short term, obviously the answer is yes. But long term, do you think it really impacts retirement goals with travel? It just depends how adventurous they are, right? Some people, like, once it's probably safe, and like you say, there's a vaccine, they'll definitely go on those dream trips. But for others, they just might be like, hey, I'm happy with, you know, local trips. Mm-hmm. But I think that, like, just because it's still going to be fresh in your mind, this isn't going away. and Your memory is going to potentially hold you back from traveling to certain parts of the area. Maybe that were just even hit harder. You know, like, you know, Italy, and not to take anything away from them, but that was an area that was hit extremely hard. So that thought's going to cross your mind. I know it would mine if I was planning a trip. So I think, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be hard for hotels, airlines, them to make it out of this because not people, any of these, just like in live events and sports and concerts, not very many people are going to want to go to these high-density areas and get packed in with hundreds of other people. I mean, it's just, it's not safe to be in and this isn't going to go any, away anytime soon. Uh, what do you guys think happens with the global economy, stock market, global trade, manufacturing going forward? What do you think is going to happen here? Yeah. For the economy, I, a lot of people are very optimistic. They think it's, this is going to bounce right back. You know, we've, we've kind of gone through this show and it's basically like, well, I think to summarize it, we'll see what happens when there's a vaccine, right? The economy is probably going to take a while to get back to where it was. Remember, for, for every person who doesn't, who isn't afraid of, you know, COVID, there's probably 10 people who are afraid and they don't want to go outside and they're not going to go back to restaurants. And instead of going to the store to get their food, they're going to order it online. And we're, you know, we're making all these big shifts. So it, it takes, it'll take some time for the economy to work this out. Uh, as for the stock market, it's way too hard to make a prediction on what stock prices will do. You're going to end up looking like a fool. But I wouldn't be truly shocked because I know people want predictions. If we get a time like, you know, the 2000s, where oh, 2000, 2001, 2002 kind of didn't go anywhere. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to take a stab at the projections of the recovery because we have this recorded. So, I mean, we can always go back to it and play it when you're wrong. Oh, but Matt, do you think that like even where stock prices are at today, like what, what's your thought? Like, you know, we've had a, a really good bounce back from our lows. I mean, are you surprised or well, what you're not a prediction, but do you think it's, you know, accurate to your long-term economic view? Uh, I'm not surprised we, we went back up, right? Because stocks always overshoot on the downside and overshoot on the upside. But over the long run, I wouldn't be, you know, shocked if two years from now we're talking stocks are in the same spot. Uh, they just haven't gone anywhere. They've gone up and down a lot as this virus kind of works its way through the economy and we see the long run impact. I, I kind of have the feeling what it seems like to me is this is almost like a storm hitting an island and there's nobody on the island to see what kind of damage or how much the damage is that the storm is actually doing to it. And it's not until really the storm passes that you're going to be able to get a good idea of how much damage was actually done. Is is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Yeah. Because there's, there's so much you can't see, you know, just looking at it even from an overview or, or, or down a sh- you know, major street, there's still so much damage that that storm did. And and I guess that was, you know, one of the points that I wanted to make was that the trickle down effect that this is going to have is, you know, we, we can't even quantify that yet. So how can um, the stock market or any other index or 
economic data really predict the trickle down effect that hasn't come that we know is on the horizon. So it's just a lot of unknown, a lot of uncertainty. You think we bring a lot of manufacturing back? I hope so. I mean, that's a big problem with our supply chain right now is we're so, you know, impacted by, by China, right? Like we, a lot of the, the PPE even that the healthcare workers need is over in China because that's where it's manufactured. Like we, we've got to bring the manufacturing back to not the United States. Like the United States, that's, you know, we don't really need manufacturing in our country, but just do it in Mexico. Do it a little closer to home. It doesn't have to be uh, factories back in Wisconsin or Michigan like, like it was back in the day. But even if you're able to not be so dependent on one country or one area, I mean, you could bring some back to the United States, you can bring some to Mexico, you could bring some to different areas, but you don't have to be dependent on one area. Because as we've seen, when a pandemic hits one area and we still need medications and they can't make their medication, that provides a huge problem. Massive problem. And you're, But you're seeing that. What I like to see is the opportunity being seized. You're seeing, you know, certain manufacturers doing in, in America uh, masks. You're seeing them make hand sanitizers. That, that, that's not their primary business. So you see that there is space to support it here. So like you're saying, Brent, I kind of agree with you. Let's bring some of it back. Um, we know that these manufacturers can produce, you know, enough of what we need so we can fill that gap. Uh, and then there's more opportunity for, you know, us in this country and we'll be more stockpiled because obviously you can see there's not enough. There's a deficit in a lot of the products that, you know, people are looking for through this crisis. You know, I think we're, we're going to actually finally find out how bad COVID ends up being as a global problem is once we start to see how much damage it does to poor nations. I mean, that's the scary part is, you know, we here are going to have a lot of deaths. Obviously, we've already seen that. But we do have, a, we're shortage on resources, but we do have a lot of resources. Those countries don't have very many resources. And that's what's scary is what's it going to do to those countries? I mean, those, those could have impacts on them for decades into the future. I agree. The, the other question that I was thinking about that, you know, I, I want to know what the long-term impact is going to be is, is really is how is retirement going to change for people? You know, how much does this change for people's retirement? If I was older, you know, and I'm, I'm getting ready to retire, I'm thinking, you know, sometime within the next two to eight years, I want to retire. I mean, or even five years, let's call it that. It's such a great time to retire right now especially with the way the economy is going to change. If you're not great on technology, you don't want to see the big changes in your corporation, pull the plug and retire now. You know, go get that retirement dream home that, that you've been waiting for. Property prices are probably going to fall over the next couple of years here. Like, there's no reason to keep working if you're not happy or, you know, if things uh, are changing for your job. Yeah, there's a, a handful of clients that we've been working with um, that have are within six months or a year, year and a half. And they're, and we've been prepared for them to get retired and they're all moving timelines up. Um, some of them are just waiting for the dust to settle to help their businesses out during this challenging time. But it sounds like many people who are, are comfortably planned for retirement understand. I mean, I think we've all learned we could do with less right now. Everybody's, I think or most people are doing with less, spending less, having less items in their house they're moving their retirement up and, and they can. I think that's a great point. What are your thoughts, Josh? Yeah, that's one big variable that I think is if you are looking at retiring, you know, in the next year or two is you're being forced to spend less, right? There's only so much you can spend on and one other time in history, you know, can you kind of say that like where you were 
confined to your house, you were quarantined, <laughs> being forced to spend less. So now's a good time to not only work on retirement, the plan, your cash flow and, and your expenses. And um, we kind of know that you'll be kind of in this confinement for, for the short term. And there's still opportunity to retire. I, I agree with you guys both. I, I think if, I mean, hopefully the benefit long term is people just find out that they could spend less and live on less and enjoy on less. I mean, I felt that way as we've been in here for the last, you know, five, six weeks. I mean, do you guys feel the same way? Yeah, I think that was kind of clarifying even what, what I was, was getting at as well. Like it, it shows you that you can live on less Yeah, naturally. Any other ways you think that can change retirement? Other than people potentially, uh, you know, that younger generation, we call them under 45, under 50, um, changing their view of how they want to live in retirement. Um, if they've even thought that far ahead yet. Like I said, I, I think we're going to see a big move to the warmer states and potentially more remote work. So maybe instead of you know buying that house in the city and then buying a retirement home in the future, you just pick your retirement home right now and go move there and work remotely. I, I could see something like that playing now. Yeah, I, I guess there's so many things that can happen in the short term. There's so many changes that can happen. And it looks like, you know, the long term, there is going to be long term impact. But also, I mean, there's this chance that we could all go back to normal and nothing, very little changes. But I think there's going to be substantial changes. And hopefully they're all mostly for the better. And we learn from it. We grow as a nation and as a society and we grow from there. So thank you for listening to the Retirement Plan Playbook. I'm Brad Pasqua, joined by Matthew Thiel and Joshua Winterswike. Enjoyed our show and want more information. Please go to the retirementplanplaybook.com for the show notes. It also has uh, links for the show and more information. And then also, if you want to leave us a review on your podcast app, you can do that also. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to uh, recording another show and talking to you soon. Bye-bye. RPA Wealth Management is a state-registered investment advisor located in Rancho Cucamonga, California. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. RPA Wealth Management may only transact business in those states and jurisdictions in which it is registered or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from registration requirements. A copy of RPA Wealth Management's current disclosure statement, Form ADV Part 1, containing RPA Wealth Management's business operations, services, and fees is available by accessing the SEC's Investment Advisor Public Disclosure website. RPA Wealth Management will provide Form ADV Part 2A from Brochure and 2B Brochure Supplement to interested parties upon request. Information provided on this podcast should not be construed as a solicitation or offer or recommendation to acquire or dispose of any investment or engage in any other transaction. RPA Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personal investment advice or financial planning advice through its podcasts. RPA Wealth Management podcasts are intended for information and educational purposes only.